When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Metal Exchange. Justin and Chris here with you for a very special episode as we are joined by one half of the mighty Nevermore. We'd like to welcome Jeff Loomis and Van Williams here to the Metal Exchange. How are you gentlemen doing? Hello. Excellent. Very well. Great to have you guys here. It is absolutely our treat. Uh, Chris, uh, how are you, my friend? I, I should welcome you in uh, as well. How are you, bud? I am the least important person in the room currently. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just excited to kind of be a fly on the wall here and, and listen to some uh, cool stories and things. But the, this is a real treat. And um, we haven't told our listeners about this so when it comes out tomorrow i think it's going to be a really fun surprise uh and a a really nice um just a kind of a a little piece to go with our chat about um dead heart in a dead world which we uh dropped on on monday so uh i i repeat what justin said and thank you both for joining us it's our pleasure thank you yeah yeah and so I guess we'll start kind of at the beginning before we get into Dead Heart. Uh, obviously, Jeff, I know that, you know, what was kind of like the formation of the band in like those early days, you know, as you were kind of evolving from Sanctuary and kind of going into this more proggy direction in, in many respects? I, I think it's hard to classify the band. And I think there was an evolution, you know, over the years. But some people will say progressive, progressive thrash, whatever you want to call it. Talk mm-hmm. about those early formative days of the band when you and Rarl, um had left Sanctuary. Yeah, um, well, it was kind of a crazy time. It was uh, right around 1992, I believe. Um, and I had only performed one live show with the band Sanctuary. And basically, um, the show went off really great. It was, it was a Sanctuary and Forest Entry playing at this uh, club right underneath the Space Needle called the Oz. Um, And after that show happened, basically, in a nutshell, Sanctuary broke up due to, I guess you could really call it musical differences, you know? I think Lenny wanted to go in a different kind of uh, direction, musically speaking, and Laurel and Jim really wanted to stay, uh, you know, in line with uh, with metal, you know what I'm saying? And you have to keep in mind that this was a time where Seattle was just flourishing with a lot of new, a lot of new musical sounds, you know, Nirvana, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, these type of sounds were coming into the city. And uh, I don't want to really say Lenny wanted to go in that direction, but I think he wanted to kind of um, experiment, you know, with that. And something happened and there was a fight and um, <laughs> Lenny and Dave went one direction, and me, Worrell, 
and Jim went in another direction. And we literally, I'm trying to make this all like compressed. So it's like, you know, so that the story is kind of quicker, but sure. basically what happened was um, we started writing demo tapes um, and we started sending these demo tapes all over the world, basically. And somehow those demos got into the hands of uh, two really key figures uh, that that made Nevermore kind of happen in the beginning. One of those fellows was a, a gentleman by the name of Neil Kernan. And the other gentleman was uh, a guy by the name of Borovoy Kringen, uh, who, who runs Blabbermouth. And he was doing a lot of tape trading back then. And he was very, uh, you know, he, he was one of the guys that really got our demo tape to uh, a record company called Century Media. And, um, you know, after I think three years of hard work and doing a bunch of demos, we finally got signed to to Century Media. And then we were basically on our way. And that's kind of what put us uh, on the map, I guess, to, to start touring and start making music. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history, but not without Kinda. Van obviously joining the fold. Was right. it 94, 95, right, Van? It was, yeah, 94, 95, I think, Van, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. How did you got how did you link up with um you know this established act all the way out west? Um I had moved out west um maybe a year or two years prior with a band from here <clears throat> and the uh singer his mom lived out there moved out there so he's like dude we can play every night out in Seattle there's clubs everywhere and uh, Chris and I, we were in a band with the singer, so we're like, let's go. So we moved out. That band fell apart, like, immediately. We rented a house together. And then um, I seen an ad in uh, the local thing, like the Rocket. It's like a Seattle mag that has, like, you know, uh, help wanteds and band stuff and all that kind of stuff. Uh, musician gear, you know, clubs, uh, ads and all of that stuff. So, um, send a demo and a photo or whatever, and um, they're looking for a drummer. So I sent that stuff. Oh, so we we actually did have an ad in the in the rocket. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. See, it's all coming back to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably been a while since you even thought about it. I mean, we're going back thirty years at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah, seriously, because all I really remember is Van showing up to my apartment in West Seattle uh, for our first little meet and greet, and uh, we hit it off pretty pretty uh, quickly. You know, it was pretty cool. We had a lot of the same musical tastes and uh, a lot of the same bands that we were into at the time, like Voivod, just weird, obscure bands. And uh, so that's what I kind of remember. And then just... Uh, basically starting to practice down at this facility called NAF Productions, which was a, a, a practice space in West Seattle uh, that most of the bands uh, in the greater Seattle area practiced at. Alice and Chain, Soundgarden, huh. Hole, uh, yeah, and um, Front Truck. So we got to share the room with Alice and Chains. To be honest, yeah, I mean, there were those guys were walking around everywhere all the time. And, and as a matter of fact, Chris Cornell popped into our first video shoot for what tomorrow knows drinking our 
our keg of beer that we had in there. So it was just crazy times, you know? And these guys were all just like, <laughs> just dudes hanging out, you know? How, how was the interplay between a, you know, like an, a, a band, a metal band that was about to, you know, take off in such as yourselves and these other guys that were playing heavy music, but in a very different style? Everybody got along. That's what I remember, you know? And uh, the thing is, is that even though all this uh, quote unquote grunge music was so popular at the time, people still were hungry for metal. That's for dang sure. Because we were playing a lot of bar dates and little venues, you know, 150, 200 cap. And it was always full of metalheads and um, very good memories of that. So it was never just like a couple people at the gigs. It was always pretty packed. So we got lucky in that regard that there was still the, the hunger for metal there, you know. That's great. And and I'll just, uh, you know, in the interest of time, I'll just kind of fast forward a little bit. Obviously, those first three albums come out. It seems to me that the popularity of Nevermore grows with each mm-hmm. subsequent album. Um, and, and and I was always, you know, my first exposure to the band was, was Dreaming Neon Black, which obviously is the precursor to Dead Heart. But even with that album, I think that that's the one, in my opinion, that people really started to take notice throughout the United States. Not that they weren't listening to the first two, but Dreaming yeah. Neon Black, I think, was the one where you you really made your mark. And then mm-hmm. Dead Heart just took it to a whole nother level in terms of um, accessibility in many regards. Yeah. Did, yeah. Did, you, did you make a concerted effort to write Dead Heart and try to bring in a wider audience? Or was that just the natural evolution? It's crazy how that worked because, um, well, to make a long story short, the the first album, the the Nevermore self-titled album, is basically two demo tapes that we had Mm. put together. So half of that is actually Mark Arrington on drums and half is Van Williams. And then the second album, Politics, was uh, kind of like done quickly together with the in memory ep together at the same time right you're right so then then finally the third uh release was also neil kernan uh which was um i'm sorry the one that you just said uh Uh, dreaming neon black (laughs) dreaming neon black yep yep yep. and then um your question to be answered it's like I, i definitely knew i wanted a heavier sound for sure and that's where the whole kind of like seven string guitar came in. Yeah. I had a seven string kind of just kicking around the house at the time. And not many people were, re- were really using them at that time. Like Steve Vai was using them. And um, I believe, did Meshuggah's first album come out then? I think, yeah, I think Meshuggah's first album. I was listening to them and I just loved the lower register of the the, 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 the thickness of another string. Yep. So I definitely wanted to really hone in on that um, and just write heavier, heavier music. But I think a lot of it had to do also with Andy Sneap. I was going to ask you that, and I'm glad you brought that up. So this is a big pivot, right? Because you go from Neil to Andy. Um, What influence did he have, not only on the songwriting process, but just in terms of your your approach to, 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 you know, kind of putting the album together? Back then we were super lucky because, you know, producers were flying out to the band to do pre-production, right? So I basically heard of Andy's name when I started listening to a band called Stuck Mojo. And I was like, who the heck produced this album? It sounds so fat and so heavy. And the drums sounded just like pounding. And the guitar tone was just in your face. So I hunted this guy down, Andy Sneap, and basically just 
found out where he lived or found out he was a British dude that lived in Derbyshire, England, and uh, got in touch with him via Century Media. He flew to Seattle and basically did pre-production with us and kind of stripped down the songs a little bit to just make them a little bit more cohesive and more in your face. And you also have to know that a big thing was um, Dead Heart was the first album, I believe, that we did with a click track and Pro Tools. So all the other albums before that was just a natural, like the whole band was, I think me and Van were basically in a room recording together but everything was done separately with Andy, just right on the click and on the money. And everything just sounded extremely massive. You know, there's a funny quick little story I want to share when, when we were in the studio in Texas uh, recording, there was some fans, uh, Mexican fans that snuck over the border and basically knew that we were recording. studio. Yeah. And, and there was just this, like, it was two dudes and like two girls and, and Andy was like, would you like to hear the first track in the album? And he just cranked the mains uh, for Narcosynthesis. And I swear to God, it blew them all back like a foot. They were just like sonically overwhelmed. You know, it was pretty cool to see that because we knew that we kind of had something under our belts, basically, that was really powerful to share, you know. It's like a perfect test case. You bring four fans over that have no idea what's about to literally hit them in the face. That's great. Right. Yeah. It was a good memory. And that's, I think that's why that album really has its differences than all the other ones is because we went with another producer, number one, and we recorded to a click, which just had a, made it have a very concrete foundation. And we just built from the ground up and made a really cool album. It's something that uh, really sticks with me as being one of our best, in my opinion. In a, in a macro sense, um, would you say that you made a concerted effort to make each album kind of have its own flavor. Cause I admittedly um, am kind of a newbie in the Nevermore world. And uh, I was really fascinated with some of the chatter on our uh, Facebook group about Nevermore after we released this episode. And it was interesting to me because everybody had like a different favorite album. There'd be people like dead heart was my favorite. And then somebody else would be like, you know, uh, godless endeavor or whatever like it, it was like <laughs> like everybody had like a different kind of album that they really resonated with and i thought that was really interesting because a lot of bands you like people would be like oh with halloween it's like keeper of the seven keys part two and like everybody says that it, it was interesting to me that everybody kind of had their own favorite album so i was just curious if like you wanted to kind of make each album have its own kind of identity uh Personally, for me, not. It was always just kind of a natural flow, you know. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Van? Can you add to that a little bit? Or I, I mean, as far as that goes, everyone has their favorite albums, right? You know, it's hard to compare that to 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 stuff when it, when you're talking about albums that you're participating on versus something that you just like of a band. You know, like if you're listening to whatever whoever's band's catalog you know of their stuff if you have a favorite that's great but uh some people just look at the whole broad thing but i think something that jeff said that uh that that sonically like dead heart hit in a way i think i think everyone was in that room for that you know working with andy sonically was definitely a different 
plateau of some sort, you know? And it was, it was really cool to work with him for something like that. Um, I don't know if that's really getting off the topic of, of your point, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one because everyone likes something, something so different. And every album I think has something so different, which I like. And when it came to doing any of the music, you know, you know, it was always great to have stuff to be like, oh man, that's so killer there. Or like, but how about this instead? And then having room to do things, you know, on every record, you know, to have freedoms and to make something that everyone is really stoked about at the end of the day, you know, and no matter whatever, you know, everything else can be a shamble, but it's like, man, we got a fucking killer album right now. It's just, that is so gratifying right there. So, and we've had that I think with every record we've done where you feel that way at the end of it, you know? Yeah. I, I think everybody had such an eclectic, um, inspiration platform to walk on to and nevermore. Like I come from a background of um, a lot of seventies progressive music, you know, like yes and queen and Fleetwood Mac, all these crazy bands that you would never think a metalhead would be into. But my father brought me up on all that stuff. Van the same way he's into like David Bowie, you know, Worrell was so interested in literature and like Timothy Leary and reading about the sixties and the whole acid movement. So you get, all these people together <laughs> in one room, you're going to come up with some crazy stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, to answer your question, you know, full on, it's like everything I think came naturally to us where we weren't really sitting down discussing, okay, this is going to be that, this is going to be that. Everybody just kind of came into the room with all their ideas and put them on the table um, pretty much. And then that kind of made the album happen. Like for instance, Worrell would have something where he would say, Oh, I've got this, topic of something that I'm writing upon and it would inspire me. I'd have a riff or something like that. It would inspire, it inspire him. Van would have a drum beat or whatever, and I'd play along. So it all worked in this cool combination of ways where we were able to establish and write music very quickly back then, because I think we were all simply inspired by one another. It sounds like it came together so organically. Do you recall about how long it took for the writing process for the album? I know um, it seems like it came to be together fast, but you know you don't have that much time in the studio to actually lay everything down. How long was the, the writing process? The writing process, I, I remember it was done at 307 Valley Street, <laughs> which is now not even an address anymore because the building was knocked down. Um, and uh, I wrote a lot of that album on like a little Tascam Porta Studio, uh, just with general like uh, uh, like a you know four tracks. There's two tracks of guitar, one track of like a drum machine, and uh, just made some demos like that. And I think it took about maybe a couple of months, but I think we had about maybe a week of pre-production with Andy Sneap and then a month at Sonic Ranch Studios Van. Does that, that sounds right? About a month to record the album. So yeah, I'd say two months to write it, a week of pre-production and a month to record it, if I remember correctly. Something like that. Beautiful place. Beautiful place to create music. Yeah. But basically the owner, Tony Rancich, right? Was his name? Is his name? Tony Rancich is a he's a pecan ranch farmer and basically he's got all these acres of pecans and he decided to put a lot of his money into this studio 
where National Acts came and, and uh, like ministry was doing a lot of work down there. And uh, we ended up cutting one, two, three, I believe four albums there. Um, and it was just a beautiful place. It has like a kind of like a hacienda for the, uh, the musicians to live. And there's like maids and stuff that fold your underwear. So every day I'd get, I'd get Worrell's underwear in my batch and he'd get mine, you know, and then they'd make like, you know, food for us every night when we were done recording. And, uh, it's just a little walk from your room to the studio. And it's just a, a wonderful place to create in the middle of nowhere. Van and I had so much fun there. We uh, had mountain bikes to ourselves and we'd make like beer runs down the street to the local, there was like a 7-Eleven, like two miles down the road. And uh, one night we were just like, it's like nine o'clock at night and we're on these mountain bikes and all of a sudden we hear these dogs running like behind us and we're just like pedaling our asses off. <laughs> right? You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. But the dog like running at, at Jeff, but I was behind him and so the Turning on to him, and he's like, "Oh, he kicked it in a fucking turbo!" Oh, oh shit! They're like- <laughs> they, they were like somebody's watchdogs from another house that like sniffed us out and were just chasing us down the street. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So once we got there, we're like, "How do we get back?" Right. <laughs> so. Right, right. You, 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 you made it halfway. Now you have to get all the way back, uh, you know, back to the ranch. That's, that's great. Um, I guess there's, do you think that the tranquility of the ranch kind of played into some of the, uh, some of the riffs and some of the songwriting on the album just because of the peaceful setting and whatnot? Um, I don't really think so because most of the album was already written and recorded. Fair. Yeah. But, um, it definitely made things a lot easier and laid back, you know, like when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, you basically realize, you know, this is like before like cell phones and, you know, all that stuff when everybody was all hot and on their phone all the time. It was just peaceful and nobody else was around to bother you while you're doing your creative stuff. It was just us, the band, the studio owner and and the, the maids and stuff. So it's it cool. And a couple of dogs on the beer run. But other yeah. than that, it seems like a very peaceful spot. Yep. So but I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Van. When, when you get some of these riffs... I mean, like, at this point, are you just like, I got to come up with something to kind of match this? Because now it's this thicker tone that, that I guess the band hadn't really played with in, in on prior albums. Um, you know, I don't I don't know. I, I, uh, I Like Jeff said, we come from, like, um, I guess uh, everyone has a wide group of things they listen to growing up, right? You know, that, that they're into. And uh, so stuff that I was into was, you know, stuff with my buddy, Chris Eichhorn, you know, he's always listening to crazy shit and got me into some crazy shit. And, uh, you know, we started writing stuff that we thought was cool and crazy stuff. And I always like listening to bands that were always tough to figure out certain parts, you know, it's like, man, that's so cool, but it's, it's fucking awesome, you know? So anyway, it's kind of nerdy too, you know, it's homework too. Cause you know, you're like, fuck, okay. So that, what's that four? And we're going to do four and then we're going to do like nine. I don't like read music or nothing. You know, I could, that life would be easier if I was like, oh shit, dude. Yeah. It's a, do a fucking duck there. Now we're going to do fucking triple fucking titty whips, you know? And then you're done. I'm like, not that guy. I'm just like, all right. So I think it through what feels good and stuff like that. Anyway. 
Oh, like Voyager. That's uh, and, and some of that stuff, like tons of these things. Like, oh man, that's great. And Jeff has tons of great ideas. Like, man, that's awesome. But then I, I always like to approach it without any drums. Just give me something clean so I can like have ideas. Like maybe that he's not thinking, or and then see what works. That way you get everything. You know what I mean? You're not just thinking. Okay, only what he's thinking. You know, right out the gate. If you can get a clear vision of it just guitars you might hear something totally different you know what i mean and then play that first and then it's like oh shit and then you listen to what he did it's like oh we're close or maybe we're totally far away but we can use both things later on when we're jamming you know what i mean and then it's like oh fuck dude that's cool let's do that but let's do it that way first you know what i mean and then go back to it later but do it like this you know what i mean you know uh shit like that so i don't know yeah, I mean, we had we had we had like one of those things in the studio too, didn't we, man? Like a marker board, and we just like we'd literally just do the homework and like write things out, you know, chorus, verse, and we'd always just have a visual of that, and um, it was it was definitely all of us, our minds working together. So, no, I, th- I mean, I think it makes total sense. And then once once you have that like that, you know, the low end sound, obviously, you know, I, I know that Warlow was writing the lyrics to all this stuff. And, you know, it's been talked about in the past in terms of what his inspirations were around this time. So I won't belabor that point. But was he writing his own vocal lines in addition to the lyrics or was he um, or was it strictly just the writing of the lyrics or, you know, what what how did he kind of add his own inflection to these songs? He was doing all that. Yeah. So he was writing all the lyrics exclusively and coming up with all the uh, the the lyrical melodies as well. Right. Yeah, which is crazy because um, when I was getting some initial riffs of this thing, I would always hum my idea of what it would be. And his was always completely different. You know, that was the cool <laughs> thing about Laurel is that he had a really cool. Um, well, of course, his lyrics were incredible, but his way of phrasing and coming up with melodies that you would never think would work just worked really well it were it was one of those things where it was kind of a lucky you know I, I can't explain it it was just everything worked really cool and it was very original sounding you know i think that that's part of the allure of the band for many because mm-hmm. i think you hear certain things on an album like this and, and all the other albums really you mentioned some of the seattle grunge bands that were coming up around the early 90s mm-hmm. I, I mentioned to chris when we recorded you know our, our um recap of the episode i heard you know Soundgarden. i heard alice in chains on this album in parts and then i obviously <laughs> yeah. you know i'm Obviously, it didn't permeate everything, but you could hear a riff here or even, mm-hmm. you know, a, a verse here. And it just kind of reminded me of stuff that I had listened to 30 years ago. But right. at the same time, um, you know, what, what kind of separates it is, quite frankly, obviously the riffs, but Van's drumming and, mm-hmm. and Warrell's unique vocal lines or vocal melodies, which are mm-hmm. – I think why people lump you in the prog category because it's just a little mm-hmm. bit offbeat, but in the best mm-hmm. way possible, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think we always did kind of get lumped into that band. And wouldn't you say the progressive kind of prog kind of thing? Um, I always just call this a metal band. Yeah. I think I was I mean, always just like, we're a, we're checks a off more band. boxes that way. Yeah. I mean, deep down, it's really, I was never thinking progressive. Uh, I was just thinking whatever felt right, you know, yeah. like, uh, I don't know. I, I back then it was cool because I just didn't think about things too much, you know. Now it's like 
you have a visual with a visual with everything nowadays with all your things you see on Instagram and all that. Back then, I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was just thinking about what sounded good to my ears, you know. And um, I don't know. <laughs> now yeah, everything listen, is I... just exploited, you know. It's just like kids playing fast on Instagram and just these drummers playing crazy things. And, you know, it's like, it's almost like a, a pissing contest or something. You know? <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, and, and, and I'm not saying that some of these people don't have talent, but I think oh, it loses no, the feel. It loses the feel that, and yeah. that, and to me, that's the issue I have. There's a, a lot of people can play. I'm not like, one of them, but a lot come, of people it's can. Come but, from the heart, you know. Yeah. I mean? And you can tell, you can tell with some of the drum beats, the drum fills and with some of the, yeah. The riffs that, especially the solos on, on this album, that you know it was it was a little more heartfelt. And sometimes, if you slow it down just a trifle, you're actually mm-hmm. better off for it rather than just playing a you know a thousand notes a minute. Exactly. Yeah, Andy was really particular with that too. He he always seemed to know the right uh, vibes for things. I had certain things worked out uh, for certain solos that uh, I thought were cool. But sometimes he would just say, "Hey, let's turn the lights down. Let's uh, let's go for it." And that made it so much fun because it's like uncharted territory. Like when you're sailing, you don't really know where you're going sometimes. But you know <laughs> what I mean? It's like when that red button hits. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's cool. It, it brings a whole different perspective to to recording. You know, because uh, you think you had something worked out and you're going to lay it down. But then he's like, just try something off the top of your head and see where that takes it. And it was really cool. I think we I think we did about half and half of that. So I had half a lot, half of my solos worked out. And the other half of that album was definitely, you know, punch the record and go for it kind of thing. Which made made it cool. Yeah. And, and as you kind of reflect back, and I know we're going back 23 years, but do any God, tracks, is it that long? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, it yeah, is. Right. It's been it's been it's been a spell. Um, yeah. Any any tracks that kind of resonate with you to this day, where you're like, you know what? Looking back, I'm really proud of that one. I mean, you've written so much stuff that Van, go for it. What do you think? Oh, uh, oh man, uh, dude, I I don't know. I'm I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out what cogs are turning in Chris's mind over there. He's like, <laughs> man, I I was I love that uh, you know, believe in nothing is, is like a song that I was like, man, why can't this be in a movie? Why can't this be in a why can't this be like on the top ten of any chart like right now? Like it's 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 heavy, but it's so meaning, you know right about just bullshit you know it's got substance i mean like that could be a hit song like like who who makes that a hit song like what do you got to do song to be like a number one uh, or at least in the top 10 i mean that's a good track i think killer radio hit is insignificant i always thought that song was just really well written um and kind of one that we never played live uh ever i don't think really but it was just never, no, because it was in a very weird tuning um, that we did called uh, Dadgad, D-A-D-G-A-D. Um, but um, for me, like the ball breakers are like narcosynthesis inside four walls. Those those kick ass. Those are probably my favorites. Um, yeah. Are we talking on that one out here? 
Yeah, I'll just we'll confine it just to Dead Heart because if we go to the whole discography, I think it turns into a six hour conversation. I'll try to spare you guys so you can get to sleep at some point. Yeah, for me, it's insignificant, uh, insignificant inside for walls and narco for me. That makes sense. Well, I'll, here's what I'll do. I'll throw out so just just some of the names that we had heard that people were just like really really into. Oh, and I, and I don't necessarily blame them because I think that there's a lot to be said, but. Uh, Chris was a huge fan of Evolution. I thought he, <laughs> Evolution 169. For, it was yeah. a little bit of an oddball, but loved it. That's kind of the grunge uh, and, and, track. And, That's the grunge track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That one's a lot of fun. That one's a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Tambourine. That one, that one I said had to have that tambourine going on in that one. So I have one song. So, yeah. That that one when I when I listened to the album for the first time, that one was the one that stuck out to me right away. And the more I listened to the album, that was the one that I always kept going back to. That I just was my favorite. And then also the one that Justin chose, um, which uh, which one did you choose, Justin? That was probably my second favorite. I chose believe. I chose believe in nothing. That's a song that I've been addicted to since the day I heard the album. And there was a ton of love that we had seen for the River Dragon. I think that a lot of people, uh, and myself included, would put that up there amongst the best in the discography. Both, I think both of those songs really hit home to to a lot of people. Worrell wrote the chorus to that song, musically speaking. Da, 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 da. I always thought that song could have been, like you guys said, like a total radio hit. If, but a lot of things we didn't work on, like we worked on recording the song like it was on the demo almost 99% of the time. And if we would have focused a little bit harder on, on editing that song, I think, and chopping it down and a bit more. I, yeah, I think that could have been, yeah, it could have been some, they've already done that many bands in the past where they just chop it out for the radio, but we were never able to do that because it didn't get that far. But I think if it was edited a little bit better, um, it could have been, possibly a radio hit but the cool thing about that band is a lot of bands have covered that song as well you know like two metal bands um god i can't remember um i know gus g's band firewind i think did i think and was it all that remains yes. was that the other yes. one i think or which i wish i i didn't know that until i was listening mm-hmm. to the album for the you know hundredth time in preparation for mm-hmm. the episode but after a quick search i was i, I couldn't believe that two other you know, pretty big, you know, name acts were, were, were covering that. I was, it, it was just surprising to me that of all the songs that those, that those bands would be covering yeah, that too. Yeah, it was really cool. And they did a nice job of it as well too. The, both the tracks I heard yeah. were, were very well done, but uh, yeah, very, very fun track. And uh, I remember hearing Worrell come up with that riff, initial riff. And then uh, I basically came up with the verses on the acoustic guitar and, and, yeah. um, that's really basically it. I think there's another small little part that's an interlude before the solo, but it's really just a two-part yep. song. It's just your, your verse and your chorus. Yeah. So, yeah, very catchy song. But sometimes I think that it, it plays nicely off songs like Narco, which are this like onslaught, you know, this kind of, which is mm-hmm. in the most beautiful way possible. But it's, it, I think that part of the allure of the album is just the the ebbs and flows. It kind of <clears> takes the listener. That all on goes a back to the whole influence of me loving Queen so much because you had monstrous, I can see monstrous that. songs that were extremely heavy, 
And then you had these melancholy songs that were extremely light. And I always loved that balance. I'd be remiss not to ask, what was the inspiration for the Simon and Garfunkel cover? Because it <laughs> kind of comes out of nowhere. But to say that you throw a curveball there is is uh, an understatement. I, I was I was I was literally going to ask that was, next as well. Um, there, that was really fascinating to me, and I, I was really oh, curious whoa. if um, at any point it was at any point was was it going to be a more traditional cover. Or and did it just turn into like we're going to make this musically our own song with the Simon and Garfunkel lyrics, or was that, that was the exactly, way it was always well, laid out? It's so funny because that song was literally supposed to be just a separate song in the album, and somehow Worrell found a some link or something how it like worked rhythmically or something to the lyrics. And then I just saw something recently too online where they were comparing our version with Disturbed's version. <laughs> <laughs> Which is completely different because we, you know, we didn't musically copy it. We just, Worrell used No, it. it's completely right different. Then? Yeah. Like it's, uh, yeah. But it it somehow worked. I don't know. Our version is just unique. And uh, I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it's all Worrell. Worrell did all that. <laughs> that was all his idea. I just remember Worrell being like, I'm going to be, that song is uh it's a Simon and Garfunkel sound of silence. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and we're all like, okay, it's sound of silence. I guess it is. Yeah. No, I'm saying if and we play it, if you play it last, sometimes we play it last, and like, come on, and like have half the crowd just come up on stage, you know, and just mobs of people just coming around the stage. I thought they were polite ninety percent of the time, you know, without stepping on pedal boards, you know, they come. Up there, I was, but I was, I had a cage of shit. You know, those guys were out in the open. But uh, yeah, that's that's a cool song. The energy too. It's an energy, you know. Yeah, we had no idea what he was talking about. It's like he just come <laughs> up with these things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the crowd loved it though, man. The crowd just got off on that one. They they loved it. Just yeah, get totally. Into it. It was I mean, super heavy. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit because now you're, you're obviously on the heels of the album. You do a number, you do a lot of touring for this album, which which I think makes all the sense in the world. Um, I think you, what was it in flames at one point, uh, shadows fall, and I caught you. Um, I caught you opening for Sabotage, which was one of my favorite bands. But I always thought the pairing was a little bit interesting because I know you, you know you had mentioned the Queen influence. I hear a lot of that in Sabotage, obviously. But when they, when you guys did that tour. You played almost the whole album. So you played, I think, seven or eight songs out of a 10 or 11 song set list. So um, was it a conscious choice, like drive the new album home for, for fans that may not have been exposed to you guys? Because Sabotage fans may not have heard the early Nevermore stuff. I'll, I'll share. Uh, I want to share you guys with a funny story about something that uh, that Worrell did that, I don't know, used to piss me off because... Um, Basically, he was all always high and mighty about putting the ballads in the set list. He's like, it's important that we do that as a metal band. And I'm like, no, I, why can't we just make it all heavy? I want it all heavy, you know? Uh, just because a lot of the bands we were playing with at the time back then were incredibly heavy bands. Like Dima Borg, we are not fucking playing Believe in Nothing when we're opening up for Dima Borgia, we're going to play all our heaviest shit and we're going to go out there and we're going to fucking destroy. He's like, fuck you. No, we're not. We're going to play that song. 
somehow I we ended up playing it. And dude, I shit you not, in the front row of the show, there's all these faces with corpse paint, right? And there's like five people in the front row just weeping. <laughs> While we're playing that song, you're just in tears, and they just loved it. And Moral was right. He just sees like he always thought it was very important to play the have like an eclectic kind. Of, I always use that word, but have a very moving set, you know, of heaviness and and lightness at the same time. And it always seemed to work for us. So seeing those people in the front row with the corpse paint on, just like weeping and getting into it, and just like singing along. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Demu came out afterwards and was like, "Why is everybody in the front row's corpse paint running?" Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It must have been three years. Yeah, three years of touring for that album. It had to be. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. Listen, I mean, you're you're obviously you put your energy into it and you believed in the album, and and I think it paid dividends because, it, like I said, you were building on the success, and it would only continue to, to grow from there. Obviously, you know, for the next dozen years or so so uh you know i think it i think it made sense and it paid off um any other memories that you want to share about this time period before we let you guys go yeah i don't fan do you remember i think we're all like the album just came out we we're always trying to push the album more so and um i think for the most part we've always felt like none of the songs are really filler i think we always kind of felt like all the songs were good it was just trying to figure out what was a good you know set list but if you have a new record out, you know, I think we were at the point where it was like, yeah, you want to push that album. And a lot of people shy away from that. They put out a new album and they only played like the single and maybe one other song. And then everyone's like, they're going to play a new one. Play that old. You know, they want to hear something from, you know, your past hits or whatever, which is fine. I get it. But you have so many new songs that you're like, man, they're going to fucking love that one. We got to put that one in. So you're fired up about putting them in. If we put in eight out of 10, that like fucking full on with that record. We're like, no, we got to drill this in the motherfuckers heads, you know? Yeah. We had a couple of questions. If uh, you guys had any fun, uh, like road stories or live, live concert memories or anything around that time or, 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 or even just at any point during the nevermore days. Van threw me across a Waffle House once. <laughs> okay, I think we, I think we're going to need to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was some good times, man. I mean, we were, dude. It's like we did anything we possibly could to get out on the road and play music, and um, we traveled in the craziest vans, and you know, like we had holes in the bottom of the vans <laughs> where you could see the yellow strips of the freeway going by. We would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we'd you know we'd buy cargo or not buy but rent cargo vans and nail in like pieces of furniture just to sit in the back, and we did anything we could you know to be out on the road. We were a very hardworking band, and uh, um, I just I have nothing but good memories. I mean, if I had no, to go like back Flintstone and change style, where you stuff, put your I feet in, start running down things, the highway, especially with the drinking and uh, you know uh, some of the irresponsibility. But <laughs> I mean, we had a good time doing it while we did, and you know. Van and I made it through it safely, um, and we made a lot of good music, and that's really what the most important thing. And I think Nevermore still is very much an active cult band to this day, where people still talk about it, and the music still stands alone on itself to this day. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. I was I was saying um, earlier this week, 
if the band was to get back together now, obviously the circumstances have changed with Wall's passing and, and obviously, um, you know, it's, it, that, that's still sending shockwaves throughout, um, you know, the, the, the tight knit metal community. But the reality is, I think the best things were yet to come for this band. And if the circumstances had been a little bit different, I think you probably would have been a more popular now than you might've even been a decade ago, just because, satellite radio and the fact that you know a lot of bands are doing big big rooms now in the united states and abroad obviously uh it's just a shame that the stars never aligned for that uh yeah. you know that second yeah. go run yeah i it's uh it is sad you know um yeah it's it's one of those things where you can't go back unfortunately and 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 redo it you know what i mean we lost some people along the way and uh especially like you said Worrell and um you know, I also want to mention Tim Calvert, you know, he was a very big part of Nevermore at one time. Yes. Um, and, you know, we've had a, a big rotating door of great guitar players in Nevermore, Steve uh, Smythe and uh, Curran Murphy and Tim Calvert and uh, Pat O'Brien, of course. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. like we were very lucky. And Chris Broderick, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it was a lot of fun while we did it. Um but yeah, like like I said previously, we we have the music to remember by, and uh, it's it was just a fantastic time. It really was very organic, you know, like just coming up with all the tunes and everybody being in the room at the same time and um, putting putting their thoughts into the into the pot, you know. That's great. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a fitting way to to end this. I, I I'd be remiss though not to ask you what you guys having have you know, kind of coming down the pike, what can fans expect? Where can they find you on your socials? And, um, you know, what, what, what the fans uh, of your music have to look forward to? Uh, Van and I are working with Graham Bonnet right now. Oh, and basically we are working on uh, a record with him and it's going to be kind of like a newer version of Alcatraz. Oh, that's great. Uh, we're probably not going to call it that. Um, but, uh, we're about seven songs in working with him and about three more tracks to write. We're basically just looking for a home for the record right now. Um, so that's, that's coming around the corner. Um, and also I'm working on my solo album at the moment. So um, being in a, um, in a situation where I have some time off right now, I'm just taking the time to finally do it because it's been long overdue. That's so, great. It's, that's, uh, that's what I'm working on. Something I think a lot of folks are uh, definitely looking forward to. Uh, are there, discussions potentially of taking that to taking this uh, show on the road with, with Graham or is it uh, premature for, for that? Uh, that's kind of too premature for that at the moment. We were just talking about doing the initial album with him, but we'll see about touring okay. in the very new future. Very yeah. good. Uh, anything, yeah. uh, anything you want to plug van before we uh, let you go? Um, well, pretty much Jeff just said this, the, the, whatever he had to say there, kiss <laughs> ditto. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, taking the time out of your schedules to join us. I know that a lot of Nevermore fans have been begging us for years, uh, and I mean that literally years, to do this uh, this album and this episode. So it is an Very absolute cool. pleasure to have you guys back and kind of reminisce about the old days. And, uh, you know, we'll check in with you soon. I will look forward to hearing the new music when it comes out. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. In the mass destruction, the bringer-